Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Microsoft has joined the campaign for open data. But will it make a difference? Hello and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist. Also coming up on today's show, will mass testing allow countries to open up? If you get the testing and tracing right, then you don't have to bounce in and out of lockdown every few months and you don't have to have people die. And why America's Southwest is prone to droughts on a mega scale. You have the conditions set up right now for a natural drought, but it's made much, much worse. It's sort of tipped over into this mega drought scale by greenhouse gas emissions. First, Microsoft has announced plans to embrace open data. It is a big strategic shift for the software company, which has long been reluctant to adopt open practices, whether open standards, open code, or open data itself. In fact, one of the firm's bosses once called the spread of free open source programs like a cancer. But that's now changed. The world's biggest tech firm wants to liberate information. Jenny Tennyson is the vice president of Britain's Open Data Institute, a nonprofit group. They have worked with many companies, including Microsoft, on open data projects. Hello, Jenny. Hi, Ken. Lovely to speak to you. What is Microsoft actually doing? What kind of information do they hope to make available? Microsoft, in their open data campaign, is focusing on data that they think can help solve or at least contribute to some big kind of global challenges and particularly for social good purposes. That seems to be where their their real focus is. And they are, are doing a range of things in order to try to advance the use of data for that kind of social good purpose. Some of it is releasing their own data as open data. So for example, they've just published some data about broadband connectivity in the US as open data as part of that. And other parts are trying to drive the creation of what they're calling data collaborations. So a kind of setup where you have some organizations making data available so that other organizations, researchers, app developers, or whatever can use it to create analyses, services, etc., to contribute to that social good purpose. And how do they plan to do that? And what specifically are they doing that will enable these sort of data collaborations to take place? So this is where the Open Data Institute is partnering with Microsoft around some of these data collaborations that they're trying to put into place. And we're going to be doing kind of two sets of activities with Microsoft around those. 
one set is looking specifically at a, a particular challenge that Microsoft is interested in. Probably it's going to be around climate change, although I'm, I'm not sure with the COVID-19 crisis whether that might shift a little. And really try to drill into where should data be made more available in order to help address that particular challenge. And then the other piece of work that we'll be doing with Microsoft around uh, creating collaborations is just trying to stimulate the creation of more of them by providing support and funding and data and, and software from Microsoft's approach in order to help new collaborations to be created and to thrive. Well, what had been the obstacle before from enabling these data collaborations? It clearly just can't be funding and the software because you can overcome those things. What is unique about data that made the sharing of it so difficult that you needed a player like Microsoft to come in to help grease that market? Getting data to be used in order to address social good challenges requires organizations to share it. And organizations typically don't want to, right? They view data as being a precious resource that they've built up that they want to exploit and think that they can get most value out of if they hold on to it. What we found at ODI is that putting forward a particular challenge, a focus, particularly when it's got that kind of social good purpose, can mean that organizations overcome those kinds of fears, especially with other organizations are similarly sharing data. And an organization doesn't need to be the first one to make those steps, then that can be a way of overcoming the kind of cultural barriers and the business model barriers that there are around sharing and opening data. So why is Microsoft's strategic decision to sort of back open data important? What's the impact of their decisions likely to have on the campaign for open data? I think that Microsoft is one of the first really big tech companies to not only say nice words about open data, but actually put some funding uh, and some data behind it. So opening up data themselves and committing to doing this over the next three year period. So I think that that's quite a an important step to have a big tech company to do that. There have been, in our experience, other organizations that we've worked with that are enterprises that have opened up data, but nothing at the same kind of scale that we're talking about with Microsoft. So it does feel like a bit of a step change in the same way as, as big tech companies adopting open sources was a bit of a step change. Really? Let me press you on this. Is it really that big a deal that Microsoft is is saying good things and is taking a couple breadcrumbs and throwing it in the way of open data? I mean, what do we really need to see here for the open data economy to take off? And is the ecology of Microsoft actually going to do it? In order to get to the open data, open and trustworthy data ecosystem that we really care about at ODI, it takes more than just one company to do that in just the same way as it takes more than just one government to do that. We're talking about an ecosystem shift, not just a, a few companies doing a few little things. That said, showing that it can be done and especially showing that it can be done by a commercial organization that you know is obviously going to be acting in some private interests as well as some nice fluffy social good interests i think those are important steps to take microsoft clearly has lots of visions uh they're a big commercial player and clearly this isn't a case of just altruism they're doing this for self-interested purposes as well 
How does open data meet Microsoft's self-interest? Microsoft is primarily a services company, so it sells software and access to software that people can use, and that includes software and services that work over data. Naturally, if more data is available and you get more people using data in order to create analyses and insights and so forth, then Microsoft reckons, I I would imagine, that it can sell more software because of that. It can sell more of its analysis projects and so on. So it's plainly not complete altruism. But from my perspective, that doesn't matter. I'm not expecting companies to only act out of altruism. That wouldn't be realistic. In fact, in order to make any kind of push towards a more open and trustworthy data ecosystem sustainable, we need organisations to be doing this for their own self-interest. So it's not a bad thing that Microsoft has these other kinds of motivations. Okay, so Microsoft enlightened data despot Do you think that other big companies like Facebook or Google or others are likely to follow suit? I think the other big tech companies are in different kinds of positions, given the amount of data that they themselves hold. But if you look across the board, Google and Apple, for example, have released information and data about mobility in order to help governments understand whether their isolation policies have been put into practice, for example. Many of those big tech companies are making data available in pockets. Facebook is contributing in some places to OpenStreetMap, for example. It's whether we can expand those pockets into more and more areas that I think is going to be the question. Okay. Jenny Tennyson, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ken. Without a treatment or vaccine for COVID-19, countries around the world have relied on social distancing and lockdowns to stop the virus from spreading from person to person. But it's having a disastrous effect on the global economy. The properties of the respiratory virus make the pandemic difficult to stop. But now consensus is growing that mass testing is imperative if we are to loosen the lockdown. So what would that entail? And what are the obstacles? Slaveya Chenkova is The Economist healthcare correspondent in London. Hello, Slaveya. Hello, Ken. And Hal Hodson is our Asia technology correspondent based in Hong Kong. Welcome, Hal. Hi, Ken. Scientists are focused on the search for a treatment and a vaccine for COVID-19. In fact, last week's Babbage was all about their efforts looking for a vaccine, and listeners can check out that program. But the third medical pillar is testing. Why is testing so important in the fight against COVID-19? So in a way, there are two different ways to use testing. The first one is to diagnose people who come in with symptoms of COVID-19 to see if they've got the disease and if they've got it, you can start treating them. But there's a different way to use it, which is essentially to try and find where the virus is in the community. And the reason that this is so important is because COVID spreads oftentimes silently. People can carry it in their upper respiratory tract without knowing that they have it, without having any symptoms of disease. And so if you can't test the population and then trace back all the contacts of the people that you find with infections of the disease, you're never going to be able to get one step ahead of its transmission and break the transmission chain. Slavea, 
How do the tests work? There are two types of tests. Uh, one is just to look for a current infection, whether the person has an active infection at the time of testing. And those are done by swabs, which are basically shoved in people's noses to take a sample of uh, the nasal secretions. And that uh, is then sent to a lab where material RNA is extracted from the swab for analysis. There are also tests for antibodies uh, that look for a recent infection, which uh, could also be useful. But to contain an epidemic, you really need to look for current infections. Now, because there's a risk that the virus could affect every person on the planet, how many of these tests do we need? We need a lot of them. And um, it's actually quite unlikely that the current version of the test, where you take a nasal swab and send it off to a lab, it's quite unlikely that that can scale all the way up to the kinds of numbers that we're talking about. There are a few working groups in the United States that have been grappling with just how many tests might be needed. And that it's sort of unclear as yet. It depends on a lot of other factors, like how much social distancing is going on, how many people are infected when you start doing this. But it's somewhere between 5 and 20 million tests a day, and that's just in America. So if you're talking about the whole planet uh, moving around as normal with no social distancing, no lockdown, you're going to need hundreds of millions of tests every single day. And currently, the infrastructure that produces and administers those tests is just nowhere near that big. Will countries be able to scale the production up to make the tests and distribute them even for the limited estimate of between 5 and 20 million a day. So currently, if we look at the US, for example, many experts say that there is capacity out there to increase up to a certain point. So currently, America is doing about a million tests per week. Um, The idea is that there is probably capacity for about three times as many tests if you just literally scout the landscape for all the labs you have that could be repurposed to do tests for COVID-19. And that, of course, is not going to be enough. As Hal said, uh, the numbers we are talking about, they're much, much higher. So you would need to expand the labs, build new ones. You would need innovation to be able to process tests faster, as well as to shift them you know, from the people who are being tested to the laboratory. So all of these things need to happen and happen very quickly for testing to get to the level needed to actually open up the economy fully without risking a second wave. So say governments do get testing up and running. What has to happen if somebody gets a positive result from those tests? Currently, what needs to happen is for those people to be isolated. So they must stay home until they're no longer infectious, uh, away from their family members even. And then their contacts, so everybody that they've been in contact with during the phase when they were infectious, which uh, you know could start a couple of days before they developed symptoms, or you know some of them may not even have symptoms at all. All these people have to be found and warned that they may be infected, they must be tested, and then those of them who test positive would in turn be isolated and their contacts would be traced and so on and so forth. This obviously is a massive exercise when you're talking about a virus that spreads very, very easily. And for that, you need a lot of public health workers, basically. And they already exist. They're called disease detectives. Um, That's their official title, indeed, at the Centers for Disease Controls uh, in America and other countries. But in order for them to support this massive increase in testing the kind of system that Hal described, you need to hire 
about 100,000 of them, at least uh, in the US by some estimates. And that's kind of just a starting point. For comparison, America currently has about 2,200 such uh, healthcare workers. How, how much is building this big infrastructure going to cost? Now, I'm mindful that it's still going to be less than the economic cost of the shutdown, but what's the price tag? So obviously this hasn't been built yet. So these numbers are just estimates, but the, the working group uh, out of the Safra Ethics Center at Harvard estimates that this is going to cost about $15 billion a month to build and operate sort of in total cost. That obviously compares very, very favorably to the $400 billion a month that lockdown is currently costing the US economy. And best of all, if you get the testing and tracing right, then you don't have to bounce in and out of lockdown every few months and you don't have to have people die. So not only is it about 20 times cheaper, it also means that fewer people die. Hal, you're in Hong Kong and Asia has been really active. What's the situation there and in testing in places like Hong Kong, Singapore, Taiwan, South Korea? Are those places handling the testing better? Is that the case? It's true in the sense that all of those places now have official case numbers that are very, very low. Right here in Hong Kong yesterday, there were zero cases and uh, people are allowed to move around freely. We're not allowed to congregate in very large numbers, but we can go wherever we want, whenever we want, pretty much. But the thing that's important to remember about uh, these countries and places is that the testing infrastructure that they have in place already, they built it right after their own sort of historical outbreaks of coronaviruses in the noughties. So SARS and MERS were really big deals in, in these places. And so those testing infrastructures, those sort of big machines that chase down the virus and isolate people, they were just ready to go as soon as uh, they discovered their very first cases. And so the machine that America needs to build to do test and trace is way, way bigger because America's infection load is way, way higher. So when do you think we'll see mass testing rolled out, if at all? So um, some of these things that Howe described are already starting to happen in the U.S. We are seeing in some states the kind of organization that is needed, the kind of looking around and working out, you know, which university lab can be repurposed, which uh, private, you know, company that, you know, might be conducting or focusing on cancer tests could pivot away and, you know, rejig their laboratory in order to do uh, large amounts of COVID-19 tests. So that's already starting to happen, but obviously there is need for a lot more money, for a lot more guidance uh, from the federal government for this to scale much quicker. And can I just add that what hasn't happened yet in the United States that probably does need to happen is there needs to be a strong signal from the federal government and from big state governments that they need all of this testing kit. They want to spend money on this infrastructure because right now when you talk to the supply chain, they're kind of like waiting around. They hear things like Fauci and Trump saying, we've got loads of tests, we've got enough tests. And they think that maybe America's not gonna build this machine and so one of the most important things that isn't happening yet is that the market hasn't received a strong signal saying, make as much of this stuff as you can, and it's going to be bought. Hal Hudson, Slavia thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. Cheers, Ken. And you can read more about the drive for testing in the upcoming edition of The Economist. Subscribe today. Go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. 
or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. And finally, the southwest of the United States and the bits of Mexico at borders across the Rio Grande are one of the driest parts of the North American continent. But over the last 20 years, even there, the meaning of dry has been stretched to its limit. For the past couple decades, the southwest of the United States has been experiencing one of the worst droughts in living memory. Katrine Breyek is our environment editor. The study was led by a climatologist, Park Williams, at Columbia University in collaboration with researchers across the U.S., and what this study shows is that, in fact, that drought is, is much worse than that, put in a much longer historical context. Some scientists think this could be a mega drought. What does that mean? So there's no formal definition of a mega drought, although some people have defined it as a period of drought that lasts two decades or more. What this study has done is it's looked at the soil moisture levels during the last 20 years, 19 to 20 years, and compared it to estimates of soil moisture levels going back 1,200 years to 800 AD. And it's found that during that 1,200 year period, there were four extreme mega droughts lasting two decades or more. And this fifth period, so the last 20 years, is as bad as the worst of those four. And how can scientists measure how dry an area is over the course of millennia? Yeah, so obviously there weren't people around 1,200 years ago to measure soil moisture, but what we do have are trees going back that far. And trees grow differently depending on the amount of moisture every year. You get tree rings where every year you have a ring added to the trunk of the tree. And when conditions are warm and wet, generally a tree tends to grow faster. And during a drought, when conditions are colder often and especially drier, the tree will grow more slowly. In years when you have a drought, when soil moisture is particularly low, the tree ring will just be extremely narrow. Now, mega droughts have been around for a while in the past. So is it possible to tell how much this mega drought is due to man-made climate change how do you measure that? One of the things this study did was try to look at the contribution of climate change to this mega drought that is still ongoing, by the way, according to their to their measures. And what you do there is you use climate models, which allow us to, in a sense, run simulations of what the past leading into the present would have looked like with and without the impact of greenhouse gas emissions. And when you do that, what you find is that in all likelihood, the southwest of the US would have experienced a drought but it wouldn't have been as bad. They've got various estimates of the scale of that. 
And when I spoke to the researchers, they were fairly cautious about really pinning much to the numbers. I think there's something like 50% of the severity of the drought could be attributed to greenhouse gas emissions. But the researcher was quite clear that that number specifically, the absolute value is maybe not something that you would want to rely on too much. What's very clear is that you have uh, the conditions set up right now for a natural drought, but it's made much, much worse. It's sort of tipped over into this mega drought scale by greenhouse gas emissions. Is there anything we can do to try to dampen, for so to speak, the impact of the drought? So the causes of drought in this region are layered in complex. You've got, as we said, these sort of natural variability, things like El Nino and La Nina cycles that will periodically dry out the region. You have climate change on top of that that is drying out the region. And then you also have human use of water, particularly as a result of agricultural operations. And Irrigation water use in this particular region is very intense. It's been drying out huge water courses like the Colorado River to the extent where irrigation is now tapping into underground aquifers and using up stores of water that are not necessarily going to be certainly rapidly replenished. It's fairly clear that the water management in this region is unsustainable and addressing that will go some way to helping with the drought. So do water authorities need to recalibrate their models to account for this? I think certainly that would help and that's true for many different climate systems around the world. The other interesting thing that this study highlighted was that the 20th century unexpectedly was actually quite wet when put into this 1,200-year historical context. And the irrigation, the water management policies that were established in the region were designed in the 20th century based on these, what turns out to be unrealistic expectations of water availability. I think it's important for the politicians in the region and the policymakers in the region to realize that their systems are based on unrealistic historical expectations and certainly unrealistic expectations of what the future might bring. Katrine, thank you very much. Thank you, Kim. And that's all for this episode of Babbage. Thank you for listening. And while you're still with us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in West London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.